Um, and a good morning, especially to you if you're a guest here in our midst this morning, or if you're a guest online. We're delighted that you've tuned in or that you're here. And uh, it's my delight to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Friends, you will remember that in the Gospels, Jesus said, I will build my church. And can you fill in the rest? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, it's been my experience that we normally, when we hear Jesus saying that, we take it in this fashion. We say, Jesus will build his church and will remain a fortress that the gates of hell will not pre prevail against. We won't be battered down. We won't be destroyed. We won't be overcome. If you hear Jesus' words in that way, you hear them wrongly. <laughs> gates are a defensive mechanism. The church, in the image of Jesus, is battering down the gates of hell. We're taking the ground against hell. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's incredibly important. Why? Well, the gates of hell will not prevail because the same power, Paul says, in the beginning of Ephesians, that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power now that operates in the church of Jesus Christ. When we are suited up in the armor of God, as we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And today we come to the third piece of armor. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You have Romans, you have Corinthians, you have Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm just going to read up to the point where we get to uh, the armor we're going to look at for today. So starting at verse 10. Beloved, once again, lift up your hearts to hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And this morning, we're going to look at these boots or the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I think it's rubbing against my face. Is this sound okay in the sanctuary here? Okay. I can't ask you at home. I think, and perhaps you will agree with me, that we have been learning in a pretty acute way recently about just how fragile unity is and how fragile peace is, uh, both in the world at large, as well as, I think, in the church in particular. In the world at large, over the last 200 years, there have been uncounted, untold numbers of wars, of conflict, of strife, of fighting, of division from one another in both very big ways, at the level of states and nations warring with one another, and in very small ways, right down on into the fights that happen in nuclear families and the divisions that happen and the divorces that can happen. 
if you've had your ear to the ground recently and what's going on in the news, perhaps your sense along with me is that things are coming to a point of being more polarized than they have in a very long time. The gap that separates what we typically call the right from the left seems to be getting wider and wider and wider. Voices are becoming more shrill. Our ability to dialogue with one another is becoming less. And it seems like violence, where when it is not breaking out, is simmering just beneath the surface. I think we are learning recently that our peace, our unity in the world is far more fragile than we thought it was. Unfortunately, I also think that we're learning this in the truth uh, in the church lately. Um, since the Protestant Reformation, to go back 500 years, we had an initial split from the Catholic Church, which I believe was necessary at that time because essentials of the gospel were being lost, and it was an attempt on the part of the reformers to recover the true gospel. But then, since that time, the spirit of Protestantism, which is to say our spirit of protesting, has just continued and oftentimes for very kind of petty little things like whether we should sprinkle babies or dip them uh, or do infant baptisms or not we have divided Christ's church and the spirit is still alive today friends and I think that we are facing a time in the church where we need to be honest that we are coming potentially to a time of great division in the church of Jesus today and in a major way um, I would love to talk about other denominations. I would love to talk about other churches, but the reality I think we need to be honest about is that we in the Christian Reformed Church, like a lot of denominations in the West right now, are being threatened with a major division over questions of human sexuality. It's hard to talk about. None of us want to talk about it. But the reality is that we are on the cusp of a major division. If you've been watching the news in the Christian Reformed Church lately, you will see that there is a movement to change what the church has always believed. Now, I don't bring this up this morning to get involved in this issue. It is invariable, inevitable that we're going to have to talk about this. My point is, very simply, things are far more fragile in the church and even in the Christian Reformed Church than I think we are aware of. Our peace and our unity as a denomination is in jeopardy and we need to know it and we can't hide from it anymore and what we also need to know is that the devil the powers and principalities of this dark world would want nothing more than to affect our division than to disrupt the peace that we have in christ if the spirit of jesus as we are taught in john 17 in his high priestly prayer if the spirit of jesus is the spirit of unity the spirit of communion, then the spirit of the antichrist of the devil is the spirit of disunion. It is the spirit of divorce. The devil would love to see us in the church splintered apart from one another and in major ways. He would love it. And we just need to be honest about that. This is part of the war that we are in, the war to keep unity and to keep peace in the church, so that Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 is maintained. And it is also for this reason that we need not only strap on the belt of truth, the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness, but also now that we need to put on boots that Paul suggests in this text we need to put on, which are, is the feet 
fitted with the readiness, and really the Greek there is probably better translated as the sturdiness or the steadiness that comes from the gospel of peace. A Roman soldier's shoes would enable them to go in a fleet-footed way and to take as a unit, as a legion, the battle to their enemy, to enable them to rush out and take the battlefield. It would also enable them, when there was a frontal attack on them, to keep their footing, to not be bowled over, and in particular, not to break ranks, but to stand shoulder to shoulder as a Roman legion in which there was their strength. The unity was their strength, and their shoes enabled them to do it. And what Paul is saying with this metaphor, friends, of the feet fitted with the sturdiness that comes from the gospel of peace, he's saying that our peace as the body of Christ and peace in this world will fundamentally come from one thing and one thing alone. It will be preserved by one thing and one thing alone as well. And that is the gospel. The gospel is the ground and the source and the soil of our unity in the body of Christ. As Paul will say explicitly in Ephesians 3 and 16, chapter 3 and 16, how did Jews and Gentiles, right? People that were completely different from one another. They had different backgrounds. They had different traditions. They had different sexual moralities. How on earth did these two very different people, as far apart as you can imagine, come together to be the one body of Christ and live together in harmony and peace? How did that happen originally? Paul says, it is through the gospel that you Gentiles have been united to Christ. It's through the gospel that they are made together as Jews and Gentiles, the one body of Christ. This means for us that our unity as a body of Christ as we move forward and our peace as a body of Christ will not be held together by vague notions of grace, by vague notions of love, by vague notions of justice. Our unity as the body of Christ will not be held together by holding on to societal themes like diversity and inclusion and equity, as wonderful as those things may be. No. The New Testament is positively insistent. Paul is positively insistent. Go back and read Galatians again. Our unity as the body of Christ is forged and fired in one thing and one thing alone. The gospel. And so, the question before us this morning, I think, is twofold. I think the first question is, well, what is the gospel exactly? We need to be clear on what it is that forges our unity together. What is the gospel? And then the second question after this, I think, that will be helpful for us is to say, okay, the gospel does unite us together, but then how does the gospel also help to preserve and promote our unity and peace. So in just a very practical way. Okay, so those two questions, starting with, let's remind ourselves, what is the gospel? This should be entirely basic. It will be basic for most of us, but it's actually really helpful to rehearse. What is the gospel? It is embedded, of course, in the larger story, the whole canvas of Scripture's story about Adam and Israel and the rest of that. But we're going to be somewhat terse and brief this morning. Paul, in Romans 1.13, says the gospel is this. He kind of gives us like a little thesis statement of what the gospel is. He says, how is it that you were united to Christ? When you heard the word of truth, comma, 
the gospel of your salvation. That's when you are united to Christ. What is the gospel? In the most basic possible way we could frame it, it is the word of truth. A word of truth. Next, what's the word of truth? Well, happily, Paul is going to expound again the basic tenets, the basic truths that comprise and constitute the gospel in his letter to the Ephesians because he is worried. They have. Their differences have started to come to the surface. Their old ways of living have started to come to the surface and are beginning to create divisions among them. And so Paul writes to remind them of the fundamental tenets, the foundation of the gospel truths, so that they will remain united as the people of God, as the one body of God in this world. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, as Paul will say later. What are these truths? Truth about sin, three truths. Truth about sin, truth about salvation, and truth about, then, being placed by God in the world as a new community in mission. Those three truths constitute the fundamental truths of the gospel. The truth about sin, the truth about salvation, and the truth about community in mission. One at a time. The truth about sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, You. The you there is plural. You all, prior to becoming the people of God in Christ. You all were once dead in your sin and transgression. The first declaration and truth of the gospel, friends, is the truth about sin. We, from the time of Adam and Eve and their rebellion, each and every one of us, without exception, you all, all of us, find ourselves in a state of sin. We have a natural inclination to rebel against God and to rebel against other people, to rebel against God's authority, to run the opposite direction from the life giver in this world. And as a consequence, says Scripture, we find ourselves in a state of brokenness, to be sure. Oh, are we broken. But then also we find ourselves in a state of guilt. There is a penalty against us. We find ourselves in a state of shame, which means, as Genesis will say, that we feel naked. We are ashamed of who we are. We may not be sure of who we are anymore, and we scramble to find an identity in the world. But then we also find ourselves in a state of condemnation because, as Scripture teaches, the wages of sin is death. And indeed, physical death, along with all sorts of other death, is coming for us. The first foundational truth of the gospel is the truth about sin. Any declaration of the gospel that does not finally enable somebody to embrace the truth that they have rebelled against God and to feel repentance for it is not a true proclamation of the gospel. If we haven't heard about the reality of sin, if we don't take seriously the reality of our sin, we have not heard the gospel proclaimed in its truth. Because the first truth of the gospel is the, first, is the truth about sin. But then, thanks be to God, there is another great truth of the gospel. And that is, despite the fact that we are all sinners, there is salvation. Paul says in Romans even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says here in Ephesians, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive 
with Christ Jesus. <laughs> we don't deserve it. We are worthy of wrath according to Scripture, but because of God's great love for us, He deals with our state of shame. He deals with our state of guilt. He steals, He deals with our state of condemnation. He deals with the brokenness that still plagues our life. And he is now making us new creations in Christ. And guess what, folks? There's nothing that you did to deserve it, according to Paul. It is by grace through faith alone that we are saved and receive the gift of salvation in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace alone. It's a gift so that no one can boast before a God. He did it. He made you his son. He made you his daughter. He made us his children because of his gift in Christ Jesus who shed his blood for us. The truth of the gospel is the truth about sin and the truth about salvation. Putting them together, we say, we are sinners saved by the grace of God through faith. But it's very important now that we don't stop there because we must go on. Because God just doesn't leave us there. He doesn't say, okay, you're saved. Now just do whatever you want to do in your life and wait until heaven comes. You know, just wait until you die and you can go to heaven when you die and after that you can have a whole new world. No, instead, God takes us who have been saved by grace through faith. He takes us and places us in a community, in the church. As he says, the consequence of being saved as sinners by the grace of God through faith is that you are no longer aliens and foreigners but rather, you are the one body of Christ through the gospel. You are God's new community in the world who have a mission. And what is the mission? To put it in a very tight nutshell, the mission is we are to be God's new humanity in the world. His restored Adam and Eve's, if you will. Those who begin again in the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, to live the new life. The life that God always designed us to live in accord with his creational intentions, in accord with God's own character that we are to be the likeness of, that we are to be the image of in the world. This is our mission as the people of God together to be God's new humanity. And the language for this in Ephesians, by the way, is many and various, but it all builds up to this climactic point. You were predestined for what? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Holy means simply to be set apart. We're to be set apart, as Peter will say, as a peculiar people in the world. We look different because we no longer follow the ways of the world. But we make war against the flesh, the desires in us which, want, which make us want to do what we ought not do. We fight the battle against the world, which is to say the fallen systems and structures of our world. And we fight the battle against the devil who would like us to live in according to sensuality and other depraved ways and against other people and in battle, battling in warfare. We are to be the new humanity of Jesus in the world today. Other language, the bride of Christ, the temple in the world. We are to be, as Paul says, for the praise of his glory, which was the original vocation of humanity since the beginning. These three truths, friends, comprise in a nutshell, tightly, in skeletal form, the truths of the gospel. It's the truth about sin, the truth about salvation, and the truth that God has then placed us as his new community in the world, his 
with the mission to be his new humanity. Okay. Now, how does this promote peace? How do, will this preserve our peace as the people of God in the world? I want to say this briefly, and I want to say this hopefully in a way that is memorable. And so let me put it this way, um, somewhat picturesquely, and I'll explain them each. But I think that when the gospel saturates our heart in our relationship with other people, and this, this actually is applicable to what goes on in the church, but also what goes on in our intimate relationships, what goes on in our relationship with people on the outside world, it will enable us to make some exchanges, okay? Some exchanges that will promote and preserve peace. These ones. We will exchange a microscope for a mirror. Or we'll take up a mirror instead of a microscope. We will take up a level instead of a ladder. And you see the way I'm going to use the alliteration here just to help your memory? We will also take up a warm blanket instead of a battle axe, or we'll exchange our battle axe in order to get a warm blanket, and we will exchange walking on a maze and take up instead walking in a labyrinth. Okay, so just these four things. We, a lot more can be said about this. I think I'm going to have to truncate when I get to the latter two, but I think you'll get the idea, and I think this will be very practical for us. So the gospel, first of all, will promote and preserve our peace because it will enable us or empower us to take up a mirror instead of a microscope. What do I mean by this? Well, our natural inclination is human beings, right? Our natural inclinations when we get into a conflict, when we have a fight with somebody, is to pull out our finger and to point it away from ourselves in the direction of the other person and said, you're a screw-up. Look what you made me do. Why did you do that? We put the other person, in other words, under a microscope, and we look and search out their faults, their failings, their peccadilloes, and we blame them for the breakdown in the relationship. This is our natural response, as we're shown in the archetypal story of Adam and Eve, after they find themselves in a state of shame in a state of guilt, in a state of brokenness. Their first impulse when God comes and interrogates them is blame-shifting. It's not to take responsibility for their sin for themselves, but rather they point on the outside. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent, and as the joke goes, the serpent then soon doesn't have a leg to stand on. It's blame-shifting. They don't take responsibility. And this is our natural inclination too, isn't it? We pick up a microscope, and we put the other person under the microscope. We don't take a mirror and say, first and foremost, you know, what was my part in the breakdown in this relationship? What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? But when the gospel saturates our heart, and we realize just how offensive our lives have been before a God that led him to put his son on the cross, not just generically for humanity on large, although he has, but for me, it's unbelievably personal. My sin put him there. I know how apt I am to mess things up, to do things wrong, to do things half-heartedly, to not do what I ought to do. When I know that, when that truth has saturated my heart, my first response when I get into a conflict with another person is going to be to pick up a mirror instead of a microscope. I'm not going to try and shove the other person under so I can avoid responsibility for my sin, but I'm going to pick up a mirror and go, Ed, you really need to deal with yourself here. 
What's your part to play in the breakdown of this relationship? What's your part that you've played in this conflict in little or big ways? And if I haven't done anything wrong, it's, could I have done a whole lot better to prevent this from happening in the first place? Imagine if Adam, when God came to him initially, would have said, yes, Lord, I ate of the tree, and you know what? It's even worse than that. I know that your word came to me when Eve wasn't yet around, and so I was the one to get the direct revelation of God. The serpent goes to her because she's the weaker member in terms of hearing the word of God secondhand. And I stood there, and I watched, as the text says, Adam was right there standing with her. And Lord, I should have stopped it. I should have gone over there to protect my wife, and I should have stomped the serpent's head. I am responsible, Lord. Please, punish me and not her. Imagine if that had been Adam's response, how peacemaking that could have been. Rather than, as one scholar says, you really get a picture of the first divorce with a man throwing his wife under the bus. There goes their unity. Right there when he blames his wife. Imagine if, and let me just speak to husbands here, if we would do the same thing when our wife confronts us with something or a conflict erupts, and rather than saying, yeah, well, you did this, or, you know, you threw the first punch. I hope it's not a real punch, but you know what I mean, right? But instead I go, I am so sorry. I recognize as I look at myself in the mirrors, I evaluate myself that I've been completely emotionally unavailable for you, that I've been allowing things to slide, I've been a complete workaholic lately, and I'm so sorry. This, you, this really is my fault. I take responsibility for my part. Wow! What a long ways that would go to promoting peace and to preserving peace in households. And same too in the church. One of the things the gospel enables us to do is to pick up the mirror first rather than shoving people under the microscope and doing the blame shifting and avoiding responsibility. That's one of the ways that the gospel promotes peace and preserves it. Another way that the gospel does it, of course, is by empowering us to exchange um, a ladder for a level. And here's what I mean by this. Our natural inclination, and particularly here as a people who find ourselves in a state of shame— and that is that we feel threadbare, uh, we feel naked as Adam and Eve did, we're not sure who we are anymore, we feel like we have to create an identity for ourselves, we have to make ourselves valuable, make ourselves special in some way, maybe it's by being superior to other people. One of the things that we learn in scripture about this is that in order to make an identity for ourselves, in order to deal with the problem of shame, we grab ladders, okay, and we want some kind of social or upward mobility in order to make a names for our, name for ourselves, to become a somebody. It might be by getting a degree, it might be by being the best looking, it might be by being the most gifted, and we feel ourselves okay, and we also feel ourselves perhaps superior because we have those things. The problem is it puts us in a mode of competition with other people, and our ladders end up trampling other people. Here's profound example that we find of this in scripture, at least I find it very profound. In Genesis chapter 6, you have the story of Noah and the ark, and God destroying the world in the flood, and what leads up to it. What leads up to it? The first two descriptive things that we get are that the sons of God take the daughters of men to themselves. They essentially kidnap them and take them as their own is violence against women. And the other thing is that they become warriors, and some of them who win become men of renown. 
And you say, what has suddenly led humanity to do that? These are the sons of God who are doing this. Well, intriguingly, in Genesis chapter 5, you have a genealogy, and it is referred to sometimes as a genealogy of death, right? Adam, Adam lived so many and so many years, and he died. And then Seth lived so many, so many years, had so many children, and he died, and he died, and died, and died, and died. It's a genealogy of death. If you do the math on that genealogy, what you will discover, as a scholar by the name of Leon Cass, a Jewish scholar, points out, is that the first natural death in history, according to these archetypal stories, is the death of Adam, who lived 935 years, the death of Adam in the days of Noah. Suddenly, humanity in the days of Noah goes, oh my goodness, God did tell Adam and Eve that in the day of you eat of it, you will die. The serpent said you will not surely die. It's now taken 935 years for the first death. They were able to live under the illusion that they would not need to take responsibility for their sin, that they wouldn't die, that they would live forever. How do they deal with the reality of death? And what Cass points out is that what we see in terms of the violence against women and also the violence against other human beings, in other words, think division, conflict, is their way of dealing with their fear of death. Because what is death? It's the erasure of you from this planet. You are a, the biggest nobody you can be once you've died. In order to deal with it, they kidnap women who can have children for them and have harems of women so that they can have a form of social immortality. We still have that in some religions today. I can have a form of social immortality through my children. But then also, their name can live on because they've gotten a reputation that will go beyond their own death. They become men of renown who will be remembered. And these stories are archetypal, which means they're really stories about us. And the point is, we, in our bid to climb a ladder and make a name for ourselves, we often end up doing violence to other people. You can see this even in families where there's a spirit of competition. I need to be better than my brother, because if I'm better than him, then I will have a sense of my own identity, or I need to be better than my sisters, or, you know, when they get something good, I feel diminished, and so I need to have it. And it's a spirit of warfare in families in very little ways. But the gospel, friends, levels this out. Why? Because the gospel says, you cannot create an identity for yourself. You can't. You can't. The only way we actually get an identity that's going to endure is by God claiming us as his own and calling us his sons and daughters. And notice that. We're the sons and daughters of God. That's a level. We all equally have the same value. We're equally loved by God in the church. We're brothers and sisters. Therefore, we don't need to establish um, hierarchies of value in the church that say you're truly valuable if you're this or if you're that. No, we all have the same value. And what peace this brings to our hearts, I don't need to fight for attention anymore, to fight to be recognized, because we all have the same value. So we exchange, the gospel enables us to exchange uh, our ladders at, for a level, which promotes peace. And then let me be brief with these last two, but these are, this one's quite straightforward, and we should know this in the church. The gospel enables us also to exchange a battle axe for a warm blanket. And this is basically that, you know, our natural intuition, our natural response when somebody has harmed us is the response of Lamech. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you seven times over. 
you do something wrong to me, I'm going to do something wrong to you and to your brother and to your family. And it creates what Martin Luther King Jr. called the spiral of violence in humanity. And we see it writ large in our world today. But the gospel comes in and says, you don't need to pay back somebody for the wrong that they've done to you. You can actually, you have the ability now in the spirit to give up the anger that you have a right to and the desire to seek revenge which comes along with it. Because God has forgiven you. He's forgiven you this much. In one parable, it's like a billion dollars, the equivalent of the, of the merciful master and the unmerciful servant. A billion dollars, he's forgiven you that much, and God calls you to forgive comparatively this much. Who are we not to forgive? And when the gospel, that is, just how much God has forgiven us, truly penetrates our heart, we become peacemakers because we're able to drop the battle axe against others and instead put the warm blanket of forgiveness around them. And, and by the way, forgiveness doesn't say what you did isn't wrong. It doesn't say that. It says, I'm not going to punish you for the wrong that you've done to me. It says, I'm going to open the door for the possibility of reconciliation. It doesn't immediately mean reconciliation. There has to be the redevelopment of trust for that. So the gospel creates peace in that way too because we can forgive each other and we must. And then finally, the gospel will promote peace in the world and preserve it because it will enable us to pick up or walk, rather, in this instance, a labyrinth rather than a maze. You know the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? Is everybody familiar with the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? It's interesting. A maze is something that you start from the outside, and it's designed to get you lost, right? It's designed to bring you to dead ends, um, and if there's lots of people in the maze, it's probably designed to create these funny moments where you collide into other people, running around corners and the like of all that. A labyrinth, on the other hand, is something that has a pathway. It looks like a maze, but it's very, very different because it has a pathway that as you walk it is to center you and bring you into a new center. When, as I suggested, we have received the gospel in our lives, we are given a mission by God as the community. We are placed in a labyrinth where we're all going to be heading in the same direction, at least on the major issues. And as long as we share the vision of what God wants for us as his new humanity, and we receive our marching orders from the Lord of glory, as he has given to us in his word as we believe, there will be peace because we're all going to be walking in the same direction, working, journeying together toward the center, pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. The reason we get into trouble sometimes in the church is when we are moved into a maze. We're not sure what our purpose is. We're not sure what it looks like to be the new humanity of God anymore, and we have big disagreements about what that must look like. Then we start running around in a maze. Then we start colliding into each other. And so my prayer for the church is that we would know the truth about our sin, <laughs> the truth about our salvation, and the truth about the reality that God has placed us as his new community in the world and receive our marching orders from Jesus and stay the course. May God give us this strength and may God give us this gift in these difficult days ahead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.